This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Thanks for listening to the ungated version of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. If you want to read some essays on some of these topics, please check out razib.substack.com. Again, that's razib.substack.com. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Razib Khan here with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. And I'm here today with someone that I think a lot of you will know from uh, social media, and think tank world, Lyman Stone. Uh, he gets involved in a lot of things. He's on vacation right now. For those of you who are seeing this on YouTube, so um, that is not a very realistic background. That is reality for him right now, just to keep it real. Uh, but in any case, um, I want to talk to Lyman today about religion. Uh, but uh, before, obviously, we get into that, just like quick introduction. Uh, he's director of intelligence. Uh, what was the company again, Lyman? Director of research for demographic intelligence. Demographic intelligence. Okay. And you're a PhD student at McGill doing stuff like demographic sociology, that sort of stuff, right? Um, and exactly. you have a very, very interesting... Uh, Twitter account, you get into it with a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I get into it with people, so like, don't you know? Don't worry about it. Like, no judgment on this end. <laughs> um, so, um, I, I want to ask you really quickly: Are you you are a Lutheran? Are you Missouri Synod Lutheran? I am Missouri Synod Lutheran. Uh, yeah. All right, can you can, can you tell people why that's uh, totally different than the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America? I mean, this is like not a oh, trivial, man, yeah. not a trivial thing. I mean, you know, straight out of Saxony, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. So there's like, you know, somebody says like, hi, I'm Lyman. I'm Lutheran. Like this could mean anything in the world. Like, so if you're like ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church, Church in America, Church of America in America. I don't know. Um, they're a very liberal denomination. And what I mean by liberal, uh, there's two elements to that. One is you can think like socially, progressively, politically liberal, right? Tends to, you know, um, be very much on the political left across the spectrum of issues, economic and social. Uh, but actually in our kind of denominational squabbles, um, that's actually not what liberal means for us. What liberal means, uh, is basically, um, basically, uh, basically three things. Um, one is that they do not believe that the Lutheran confessions are, uh, completely true and reliable, but they believe that they are only true and re- they are only true in so far as they agree with, you know, external validation, whereas conservatives tend to say, no, they are true we think they they are correct secondly they they don't take the bible to be the infallible word of god whereas we do um and uh um uh and then third uh there are a lot uh let's say more loosey-goosey on like membership who can commune um things like that than we tend to be so there's political liberalism and then also theological liberalism yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, oh, but these I, didn't, are... I didn't actually say what the LCMS is. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah that's, this this is a very Lutheran thing is to talk about uh, talk about our enemies list, but not who we are. Um, so we're the original Protestants, right? As Lutherans, we nailed the Lutheran nailed the things to the door in Wittenberg and set off the Reformation. Um, we're very into what we're against. Um, but uh, I'm part of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is uh, the largest conservative Lutheran denomination in America. Um, it has deep roots. It was founded by my immigrants from Germany, from Saxony, as also um, uh, also some windish immigrants in in Texas. Um, and what they all had in common, for the most part, was um, they were fleeing some kind of uh, persecution or uh, or religious unrest. And they made a church together, united by that. Specifically, what they were fleeing was what's called Prussian Unionism. This was an effort by the Prussian monarchs to force the Reformed Church, that's basically Calvinists, uh, and the Lutheran Church, that's you know my background, um, to, u- to become a union, to become one church, one state church. And the Lutherans were like, no, the Calvinists are crazy and wrong and totally awful in every respect. We'd never want to share a church with them. Um, and so again, there's that very Lutheran thing. We're very into what we're against. Um, and so all those people fled, they came to America, they started a church that's been pretty strongly defined by, uh, Lutheran distinctiveness. We like to say, right. That, uh, we, we are, we really 
have a strong church culture of the idea that we are a distinctive denomination. We're not just another American Protestant denomination. Um, we pretty strongly resist classification as like an evangelical denomination, even though sociologists will classify us as an evangelical Protestant denomination. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think we're pretty special, uh, if you will. Um, so that's kind of the historical background. I don't know how much like the theology nuts and bolts you want on like what we believe. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what's, what's going to be interesting on that. Front. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not, we're not going to go to solo script or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> most of my, most of my listeners are not Christian actually. Uh, I have yeah, done surveys. Um, uh, but, but, uh, you know, um, I think it is interesting, um, to know where people are coming from and also, but your name, uh, Lyman Stone, uh, it sounds more like an early Mormon name, uh, than it does a German name. So, uh, you're a convert, right? Uh, I am a convert, but not for Mormonism. Um, although yeah, there I mean, are Mormon, it's a very Yankee name. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah, Lyman yeah. Stone, like you know, Brother oh, yeah. Stone. You know. Oh yeah. So actually, my family founded Hartford, Connecticut, in the 1600s. So the Lyman family. There's a Lyman Church. I just visited the the Lyman House in Litchfield, Connecticut. Lyman Beecher is one of my original namesakes. So like Beecher's Bibles, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, almost. Virtually all of my ancestors arrived before 1776 and all of them arrived before 1860. So I'm old wasp stock. Um, I converted to Lutheranism. Um, I was uh, my, the first Lutheran that I really fell in love with was Soren Kierkegaard. And the second was my wife. Um, uh, and then between the two of them, they convinced me that it made sense to uh, make the trek to Wittenberg. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, now it's, it, I'm a convert, but uh, you know, they say the zeal of the convert, right? You, you tend to, people tend to really get into the things that they converted to. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, just in, in terms of like um, a lot of po American politics and culture, you see like converts to Catholicism from other backgrounds and uh, you yeah, know, they want to um, make the Pope King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing. You're the, you're the, you're, <laughs> people who are raised Catholic are like, yeah, the Pope, eh, you know, whatever whereas converts are like he should actually run the legislature <laughs> <laughs> yeah which like you know i don't think um you know you're not you're you're not that extreme i guess about your lutheranism but it's just interesting because you are i, I think you know an interesting aspect i will point out is you're denominationally very conscious whereas you know the radical evangelical uh strain of american christianity is know i mean there's non quote non-denominational churches a lot of them yeah. come from like i think baptist backgrounds but you know the really uh, reality is people just go around saying i'm christian you know right. so you i know, actually and grew up in one i grew up in a non-denominational mega church that um it was actually not coming out of the baptist tradition it was coming out of the restorationist tradition um so in some sense actually if you were to take like scale people and like the radicalness of their protestantism the restorationist tradition is like even more radical um so i grew up in that very kind of nonconformist, low church low church um non-denominational environment um but i was also raised by a theologian and a seminary professor who kind of taught me to at least raise an eyebrow at some of that uh, and think a little more about uh deep roots well, so speaking of deep roots, I think this is like a good good segue. Um, I want to talk about your report from a couple of years ago, uh, "Promise and Peril: The History of Religiosity and Its Recent Decline." Uh, just in terms of, um, you know, it kind of came to my attention. There was a a new um report or book out by I think Ryan Burgess about religion mm -hmm. in America and the nuns, the rise of secularity. And just for the non-American listeners, um, you know, I'm I'm personally an atheist. Uh, you know, I don't identify as an atheist. I'm an atheist. Just, just put it out there. But, um, you know, so, but I'm, I'm of a certain age. I'm a little older than Lyman. Um, you know, I remember the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I remember the end of communism. And so religion in America, it's changed. Its position in America has changed a lot in my lifetime, I feel. Mm -hmm. um, also, like, even in, within the Republican Party on the political right, um, what was once normative is, frankly, no longer normative. A lot of younger people, it's just not that big of a deal that they're not religious. When I was younger, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, when I was in high school, people didn't know what the word atheist was. You know, all of these things, satanic panic, like the evangelical culture was much, much uh, stronger and widespread. I mean, we don't remember uh, Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife was, you know, they were both Baptist and, you know, he was originally pro-life and she was worried about satanic stuff. So this was a much bigger deal in American life. And we've seen um secularization happening and maybe it's not we're not sweden um or france but or the uk 
But there are parts actually, of actually America, by yeah. by some measures, Sweden is more religious religious than yes, America. which which we'll get into that <laughs> because because there's some there, yeah there's some details. So I mean, um, so a lot of this has to do with America's founding. Um, it goes back. We're a very very unique country in a lot of ways. Um, I have so I've actually just so you know I have read most of Rodney Stark's works. I'm a really big fan. Going back oh, to the 1990. Going well, he was great. Uh, going back to the sure, 1990s, yeah. yeah he oh, and great. hey, hey, he's uh, he's a Lutheran. He's a member. He was a member of the LCMS. So there you go. At the by the by the end. Okay, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. he was an agnostic. For those of you out there, he was an he was a, a fellow traveler forever. And then by the end yeah. of his life, you know, he was he was yeah. a Christian. But so, um, you know, I've read a lot of his works. I've seen some evolution there. But I mean, we're gonna get into that. But really, uh, he had a book. I think like with Fink, like was it like the Churching Churching of America? That book, um, where actually no, I'm gonna take that back. It might be Finky who's it might be Finky who's Lutheran. It's either Finky or I forget which one of them is. One of them is Lutheran. I forget which one it is. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, but I mean, although Stark was Christian by the end of his life, and that's the only reason he could he could be appointed a Baylor. Uh, but uh, so you know, he he reported data that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Um. You know, and it depends on who you're talking to. That America was not a churched nation at the founding, and that it became progressively more churched over time, probably peaking in the 1960s. And stylized fact is, there's like a there's kind of like a a crash, and then it stabilized. That was actually the perception in the 80s and 90s. Um, if you read um, "Who Are We," Sam Huntington's last book, which was written probably around the year 2000, it was published in 2004. He just assumes that America is going to be as secular as it was. Uh, or at that point, indefinitely, yeah, and this was during the Bu- Bush two. It was evangelical in the White House and all this stuff. And I think Bush's evangelical aspect was frankly a little overdone. But you know, for from his own perspective, yeah. and then also from the media. But in any case, that was actually a time of like the beginning of like a start of a massive secularization wave uh, that arguably is still going on, and people argue about it. But I've just seen a massive difference within the last twenty years. I mean, you see it in the data, and we can get into that. So there's this data that we're talking about. Um, you know, you examine the data, and I, I want to ask you really quickly your take on this, your belief. So when America was founded, obviously, and you, you say this in your report, and this is well known, uh, churches were established throughout all the different colonies, almost all the different colonies, you know? Um, yeah. And that was just like part of the culture. And our federal republic was founded. And, you know, there's some books back during when when church state separation was a big deal, like the godless constitution. And then there's some evangelical books, how we're founded a Christian nation and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I think, uh, a lot of modern people don't understand, um, how radical it was at the founding that our polity, our federal polity was not explicitly wedded to a particular, uh, we'll, we'll use the word denomination, you know, but that was a really weird thing, and Europeans thought it was weird, uh, and a lot of Americans, like Patrick Henry, thought it was strange. There are some practical reasons why that couldn't happen because of religious pluralism mm-hmm. that was already happening in the in the New World. What do you What do you think about that? Because I think that that is a very that yeah. is something that modern Americans do not understand how radical. Because the founding was not totally radical in all ways. We're not the French Revolution, but when it comes to religion and disestablishmentarianism, it was pretty weird. Yeah, so um, talking about America's founding is always weird because people want to look at 1776. But of course, that's not when America was founded, right? 1600s, right? Who comes over? You've got Jamestown, you've got Massachusetts, all these things. People think of Massachusetts as religion as religious and Jamestown as like mercantile or whatever. This is not true. Um, evidence on church attendance in the Southern colonies suggests it was just as high as in the North, at least among whites. Um uh, which is an important caveat, of course. Um, uh, you know what I've done. So when uh, when Finky and Stark did their their Churching of America uh, book, um, they had access to this was kind of at the eve of the internet, basically, right? So they had access to all this archi- archival data that they put together, but it had a lot of gaps, right? Because there was just stuff that wasn't available in the ensuing, you know. 20 years, a lot more data has become available. And so in this report I wrote a few years back, I basically supplement their work with everything we now know, Uh, you know, taking records back farther, identifying denominations they missed, extending it to more recent years, comparing it to other kinds of indicators that we can take back. Um, And what I show is that 
you know, you can look at things like baby names. You can look at things like, you know, what share of births in America in the 1700s uh, had a church baptism, right? This, this is a good indicator of like a kind of secularization. Um, America was extraordinarily devout in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Secularization occurs during the 18th century. And then when the revolution happens, 1776, 1789, that period is like the low ebb of religion in America, right? This is like the lowest period of church attendance in U.S. history. Um, there's debate about why that is, but the upshot is, you know, what we know is also at that time, it was a time of radical ideas, right? You get the free thinkers like Thomas Paine, right? A very public atheist, um, which is not something you would have had in like 1687, uh, you know, Puritan Massachusetts. So there's, there is a clear ideological shift, ideational shift. So that when the revolution comes along, you've got, you know, a minority, but a loud one that wants something like secularism. But then you also have this political problem where the Southern colonies are by and large Anglican. You know, it, if you were a Baptist in Virginia, you could not legally marry because only Anglican priests could solemnize a marriage and you have to be a member of the Anglican. Like, you know, so like they were not just like nominally Anglican, like you didn't have civil rights if you weren't Anglican in Virginia um, and in most Southern states. In South Carolina, you couldn't even be citizen. You couldn't even be a citizen if you couldn't affirm like nine different uh, religious statements. Um, in the Northern colonies, of course, you have like congregationalism in several of them. Um, the upshot is uh, that um, uh, we can't agree on a national creed between congregationalism, Anglicanism, and then the minority faiths, people like Quakers, Lutherans. Benjamin Franklin has a famous uh, piece in like the 1750s where he's complaining about these unassimilable Lutheran immigrants from Germany. Um, and they'll, they'll never make good Americans. I, and look, I'm married to one. I agree. They're still not really assimilated. Um, but uh, <laughs> so um, we get this weird moment where there's a real push for like ideological secularism alongside no political consensus for a federal state religion. And so it converges into this constitution that says, look, you can't have a test act, right? You can't require religious confession for public office, which they did not mean to protect secularists. They meant it to ensure that Anglican, the Anglicans couldn't force congregationalists to be Anglican and that congregationalists could, like, they intended it for that. Uh, and in fact, test acts originally didn't even protect Quakers, uh, right? And it wasn't until later that they're like, ah, I guess we also won't make Quakers swear on a Bible because um, they won't take oaths. Um, uh, and so they get expanded. Right. Uh, but in the 1700s, you get this unique moment where, and I've done this, I've gone through every colonial and state constitution in U S history, and I've looked at all of their provisions related to religion. This is in the report where I show that there's a dramatic institutional secularization in this period. A lot of colonies, uh, disestablish their state churches, particularly the Anglican colonies do this because obviously that's the church of the crown. Um, uh, you get, um, you know, church taxes are abolished in a lot of states. Uh, you get some states prohibiting clergy from holding public office, which is like a pretty strong, like that's a limitation on civil and political rights of religious office. Like that's now that would not be okay. <laughs> like you couldn't do that, but like tons of states did that. Um, uh, you know, that's kind of like your classic anti-clericalism is like, like yeah. limiting the civil liberties of clergy. Um, yeah. So like you get these things in that period, but they don't last. Um, by and large, uh, some features last, some don't. But we actually see in the 1860s, as Catholics migrate over, there's a push to say, you know, to pass what are called Blaine Amendments, which are basically laws saying that no public money can be spent for sectarian education. They, they pass in some states, not in others. Um, but the interesting thing is there's an effort to pass a federal Blaine Amendment, and it is soundly rejected. They say, we are not going to require public education funding to be secular. Um, that is rejected as a constitutional norm in the 1860s, pretty emphatically. Um, and then it is made into a constitutional norm without any, uh, in contravention of the clearly expressed will of the electorate, it's made into a constitutional norm in a series of court cases in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, despite the fact that it is very clearly not in the Constitution. Yeah, so, um, you know, 
in America, we've had like these ways, these changes. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people from other countries, um, other parts of the world. You know, there are exceptions, like South, like Korea, for example, is an exception. You know, parts of Africa, but you know, like half, almost half of Americans change religion if you count denomination in their life, right? Yeah. Um, and like a lot of the world, that's just really strange. Um, like I've talked to people who just don't believe me when I tell them that from other, yeah. well, for example, uh, a friend from India just did not believe that for obvious reasons, you know, because <laughs> it's just like, wait, what? I mean, yeah. is, are you serious? And I was like, no, look it up. And like, I, I had to like yeah. show them, you know, you know it, it worth. Saying, a huge share of that is either switching among Protestant denominations or simply simple disaffiliation, right? And so yeah. part of what's also going on is in a lot of countries, you have people who are totally disaffiliated in terms of lifestyle, practice, and belief, but they still culturally identify as Hindu or yeah. Muslim or whatever. Or Lutheran. US, or Lutheran. Or Lutheran. Yeah, actually, that's a huge one, right? Um, but in the US, we don't have the norm of, you know, like non-theological church identity. So if you were to apply like a U.S. sociological definition of religion in India, you would find a very large share of the population that has in fact changed religion. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's I, it, a concept creep. Yeah, and so I think, you know, just for the non-Americans, like we are talking a very like American uh context here which you know is portable to some extent in some countries but a lot of the world they find this understanding alien so you know we're talking about rodney stark for example so he had um you know he had the rational choice theory the supply side model of religious competition mm -hmm. and you know i did read a theory of religion um back in the day so i do understand like explicitly like what he's talking about um i think that its best case is probably in the United States. Um, what do you think about that? I don't think that it works yeah. as well in other parts of the world. So there is, uh, I'm forgetting the exact citation, but there's a nice paper that tries to, again, tries to use like reconstructed religiosity data for like, you know, two centuries or something um, across a lot of countries. And they also look at like state religious law like country level religious policies um and they do seem to find that if you have a combination of kind of like illiberal or non-inclusive political norms in general and also um you know strong kind of religious uh um uh you know imposition in your laws that it does seem to cause more secularization in the modern period so their argument is basically it's not so much having a state religion that causes secularization. It is secularization plus kind of an early uh, high capacity state before the advent of liberalism. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So places where you you kind of you didn't really have really high centralized state capacity. Actually, India is like a great example of this. Right. You actually yeah. did have extremely like, you know, the states were very religious in India, right? And they were very not okay with conversion and they were perfectly yeah. happy to use violence about that. But your actual level of state capacity is, you know, central state capacity at least is somewhat limited, right? You have a lot yeah. of local autonomy. And so, you know, like these, so, um, so it doesn't drive a lot of secularization. Whereas, you know, somewhere like Sweden, you have a lot of state capacity really early. And, you know, Gustavus Adolphus, the Lutherans of Sweden did not really go in for like allowing dissent. That yeah. wasn't a thing. Um, and so yeah. like it's very secular today is the, is the argument. Now I don't know. So this is kind of the supply side argument, right? That if you crack down on religious competition, um, you get a lack of religious innovation. And the result is your religions can't really metamorph well to stay competitive as society changes. Um, this is a very debated thesis. Um, and, you know, your, the empirical findings for it depend on like if you use like a state level analysis, a country level analysis, a county level analysis, you know, whether you use like lifetime exposure of, of an individual or like contemporary, it's, it's very empirically contested. Um, generally speaking, I'm sympathetic to the broad idea, um, that the supply side of things matters. Um, but I, there, there's, well, if you know anything about theory of theory of religion, there's three kind of big families here. So one is supply side arguments and, you know, kind of religious competition is one of the big arguments of that. 
Um, another is basically what we could call demand side arguments, basically that uh, secularization, uh, the advent of modern rational ideas, enlightenment thinking, um, science, all these great, wonderful ideas convinced people that like the, the factual propositions of religion were probably not true. Um, and so there just wasn't demand for religion. Um, and then the third set of explanations uh, is that it's basically all idiosyncratic nonsense uh, that religiosity just kind of rises or falls based on kind of arbitrary quirks of socialization behaviors at a young age. That's actually my preferred theory <laughs> that like there's supply side matters. Some, sometimes there's demand size, like sometimes it's particularly like sometimes mm -hmm. a specific idea is really discredited um, mm -hmm. or really challenged, but religions, Religions are fine. They can work around a specific idea being discredited. They've done so many times in the past. It's not hard. Um, my view is actually idiosyncratic socialization factors are pretty much the whole story. Um, that is what happens to children guides all of society. And it's not, you know, there is a ton of religious switching in America. Almost a hundred percent of it happens before age 20. It's like 80% of it is before age 20. Um, you should tell you. You should tell Rod Dreher. No, just joking. Just joking. Right? No, no, no. No, but this is important to understand. Is like you know, if you survey teenagers, like they've already lost their faith, right? Like the rise of atheism is not about like adults sitting down with like a bunch of evidence and being like in some like neutral, rational fashion, being like which one of these propositions appears most true on the basis of some large body of evidence. No, it's basically like a decision you make when you're 11, um, empirically speaking. Um, you know, it's, it's about childhood role models. It's about parental influence. It's about, you know, media factors. Uh, the, the truth content is not very important in my view, in terms of what people actually believe. Um, you know, competition does supply side does matter for kind of, you know, enabling people to flex with times when socialization might give rise to the emergence of like an unusual new idea that's hard to cope with. Um, but, uh, but at the end of the day, like childhood socialization factors that are very idi idiosyncratic, um, are really, really, really important. And we have good empirical evidence for this, right? Like, um, there's good evidence showing that when societies become more educated, there's no change in their religiosity unless the education is legally secular. Right. So like if people acquire more years of education and like their PISA scores rise and like they, you know, all these things, but their school is like not officially secular, the government, you know, and it's like, you know, we're talking about like uh, the best case of this is a really nice randomized controlled uh, or not, or not RCT, but like a natural experiment from Indonesia where they look at a huge educational expansion, but a lot of it went to like Islamic private schools. Now they had to pass standardized tests, but they were, you know, pretty devoutly Islamic. And they find that those kids, you know, they got better jobs, better educated, better scores, but also as adults, they were just really well-educated fanatical Muslims. <laughs> like it didn't decrease religiosity. So like the evidence yeah. perhaps suggests that like the idiosyncratic content of yeah. childhood environment is hugely important. So all these, these like big, like, oh, it's about rational ideas or, oh, it's about like religious competition. Yeah. It's like, it's basically like, just like the quirk of culture when you're a kid. Yeah, let me just let me talk about Indonesia really quickly because idiosyncratic because Indonesia is not that atypical, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of people that I encounter think, well, you get more educated, you get more modern, you get more developed, you get more secular and you get more tolerant and you get more liberal. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's not necessarily what you see, say, during the Reformation and the Catholic Reformation or what's happening with the spread of, quote, Orthodox Islam. So in Indonesia, if you're a very urban, educated person, a lot of these people are what they call santri. Um, so their their religion is unmoored from their locality. It's less syncretistic. Um, it's less like, you know, localized. The traditional Ethi Indonesian Islam that's, quote, tolerant, all of a sudden is replaced by more Arabicized. You know, I, I don't want to say Arabicized, but you know what I'm no, saying, no, no, international yeah, normative yeah. Islam. Yeah. Well, and it's important that it's international. So part of what's when you get more educated, you do enter into more globalized discourses. Right. You start using so different social media, all these things. And there's this assumption that people have had that entering into a more globalized discourse will mean a more liberal discourse, right? That you will liberalize. But that's not true. The best education, like, yeah, they should, the people, they should read about the, the 17th like, century in France. <laughs> also, like, the best educated people in the world are like Saudi, Qatari, and Bahraini nationals. Okay. Like, if you look at years yeah. of educational attainment, 
especially especially for women like the best edu- the women with the most years of educational attainment in the world are like qataris okay like they're not like liberal progressives okay like it's not yeah. happening um now yeah. you know, maybe there's some drift you know maybe they're a little more liberal and progressive than like their less educated i don't know sudanese you know co-religionists or something but like all right we're going we're going to the bottom of the barrel here going to sudanese yeah, yeah, like, 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 but like this is this like Qatari women are not like an emblem of like liberal progressivism. Okay. Like, and I'm not saying there's like a critique. I'm just like, you know, it depends on which globalized discourse you land in. If you land in the globalized discourse of all the madrasas that, that Saudi Arabia is setting up, it's a very different discourse. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it's a very different set yeah. of norms. Um, you know, another good example of this in, in like the late 19th century, France uh, restricted the presence of, of, um, you know, Catholic orders in public education. Right. They like limited how many like monks and nuns and, and all that and priests could like be in Catholic, it could be in public schools. And like they made it so they couldn't be teachers anymore. And they'd been like a huge share of the teacher population. Um, and this caused that generation of young people uh, to grow up with way fewer like religious role models and inputs and stuff like that. And the upshot is they became a lot less religious. Um, uh, Dutch pillarization is another like fun example of this where like because Dutch society allowed certain groups to kind of opt out of like public religion role modeling through basically the uh, the strong sectarian divisions in the Netherlands um the result was that a lot of people grew up without any kind of religious role modeling so the Netherlands has the earliest 20th century decline in religiosity um but again religiosity is idiosyncratic there's this great study from France by Guillaume Blanc uh, that shows that like France starts to secularize in the early 18th century. And that gives rise to their mm-hmm. fertility decline in the mid 18th century. Um, the thing is by the mid 19th century, France is very religious again. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. stick. Um, and this thing is like religion, religion changes. It changes over time. It's, there's not a historical long arc of religion. Um, yeah. you know, we, we can see this, you, you can find medieval Catholic priests complaining that no one goes to mass. Um, yeah. part of that, that paper I wrote, I have a section where I show some data from the UK in the long run and it's derived from these reports. Uh, the Anglican church would like go around and like, they would have people like interview pastors and collect data on like what their concerns were about their flocks. And they would also like do head counts in churches. And like, none of them are like, oh, these people are atheists and they hate God. But you do routinely find like, Everyone is gambling on Sunday. The church is empty. The pastor has not even written a sermon because no one is there. Like you find that all the time. There's like thousands yeah. of these reports um, because like it was just a, an extremely non-religious society. And that was even a time when religious attendance was legally mandatory. It was a yeah. crime not to go to church and people were just out gambling. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's so in your report, like you try to like, you know, use these various data and connect the dots and interpolate. And this is what you have to do in a lot of times because it's not always clear. So, for example, uh, just to give an example to the listeners and viewers, um, you know, my family's from Bangladesh and there was a, a wave of uh, murders of atheists in Bangladesh, actually, about like, you know, in the teens, let's put it like, you know, the last decade. And there was nothing like this in Pakistan. And people are like, oh, does that mean Bangladesh is more fundamentalist than Pakistan? I'm like, no, it's the opposite. It's in Pakistan, everyone just keeps their mouth shut. There's there's plenty of atheists there, especially among the elite, but yeah. there's no public norm of irreligiosity there. And so they're not threatened. In Bangladesh, and it's still happening, um, probably due to the empowerment of women and integration to globalization, more you know, and like less institutional power of say army and other things, uh, there is like an outbreak of basically like, you know little like baby Dawkins, you know, type people. And they, they're big mouths, they open their mouths, and like periodically they get killed. And so what you're seeing here is not a society that's going through a religious revival. It's almost like a Spenglerian reaction uh, to probably the last gasp of the old order. See, I don't think it's either one. Um, and again, I think it's important to resist the idea of an old order and a new order, right? Today's new order will be tomorrow's old order. It will change again. Um, there are many forces that cause religiosity to change, and we've seen many times through history, religions rise and fall, religiosity rises and falls, um, recognizable religion. Sometimes, you know, we think, oh, maybe maybe what happened wasn't, wasn't that religiosity per se declined, but it was substituted by a kind of religiosity that's harder to track. A lot of people argue that's what's happening with like woke ideology in the U.S. Yeah. You know, like Ross Douthat, right, will argue that, um, yeah. that it's a new religion. 
Um, you know, it depends on what you mean by religion. Um, Western secularists tend to have a pretty strong notion that religion involves propositional statements about God, God or, or gods. Um, you know, that definition doesn't work great for like a Confucian or a Buddhist. Um, so like, then you get in, like, you've just canceled like a a lot of world religions that don't, don't have the same kind of idea. Um, you know, so, so, you know, it depends on what you mean by religion. Um, but you know, the other thing to keep in mind is just social memetics are weird, right? Like you kill someone publicly enough, there will be a copycat. Um, why do things happen in Bangladesh, not in Pakistan? Well, because Bangladesh people are more aware of things happening in Bangladesh, right? Like you don't need a big explanation, like a macro explanation for 30 murders. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you can just get that from a very small number of killers targeting a very small number of public people because like it's a meme. So So it's a positive feedback loop. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think it's important to understand that, like, all of our ideas are basically like this, right? Like, very few people arrive at any of their ideas because of some, like, like hyper rational, deep consideration of truth statements, right? We mostly do it through kind of mimetic imitation, guesswork, and kind of just throwing things at the wall and seeing what gets us, like, you know, a little bit of a dopamine hit or something, right? Like, that's basically how our minds work. Um, I'm very anti-rationalist in, in thinking about how humans make decisions, as you can tell. Sure. Um, but, uh, and so like, I think it's important to keep that in mind when we explain social phenomenon that like, look, if you had like 5,000 people out there murdering atheists, I'd be like, okay, maybe we need a macro explanation, but like a couple of dozen is like, you know, like all your killers can like meet up and have dinner together. Like you don't need a macro explanation. You just need like one social media forum. Like you need like one yeah. group chat to explain it. Like, yeah, uh, the the socializing force of one small group can yeah. be very powerful. Yeah. Don't, don't don't give my listeners ideas. You know, <laughs> no, we need I'm, more than one group chat here. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not saying it's, it's obviously horrible. Very opposed to murdering people for any reason, <laughs> especially religious reasons. Don't do that. Very opposed to that. Um, because uh, look, I'm a missionary for my faith. I don't want people to die. If people die, they can't convert. It's a horrible outcome for me. They go to hell. They go to hell, right? Right, right. Look, if you kill a Christian, they go to heaven. Like, it's terrible. You shouldn't do it. But like, okay. But like, don't kill an atheist. This is horrible. (laughs) Um, It's the worst thing you could do. Sorry, I'm going to get, I'm going to get phone calls about that from people in my denomination. Obviously, don't kill Lutherans either. Um, (laughs) Um, uh, But, you know, like, so, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, it's fine. We don't need to worry about it. It's a horrible thing. But like, it's important not to jump to like gigantic, like it's macro explanations for what might ultimately just be a weird psychosis of a small group of people mm-hmm. spread mimetically. Right. And it, you, you see a similar thing with like school shootings in the U S right. Like actual numbers of gun deaths in schools are not rising. Like they aren't, um, they're not, this is like not a growing problem, but like school shooting mass school shootings maybe are again, even the data on that doesn't necessarily suggest that it's necessarily a huge problem. Um, they've probably risen since late 1990s, largely because of copycatting, right? Like you don't need to come up with like an elaborate explanation for why suddenly, you know, a small set of angry and depressed high school boys acted out their, their, you know, problems by murdering their classmates, right? Like we know why it happened one or two groups of high school boys uh, did this and the media ate it up and loved it. And so it communicated to every angry high school boy in the world that like, this is a way to get attention. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, you know, there are these, you know, like ephemeral, these patterns that come and go, but let's, let's talk about like a bigger pattern. Um, would you agree that there has been um, a wave of secularization over the last generation in the United oh, States. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. in my report, I show yeah. uh, church attendance, religious behavior have, has oscillated dramatically over time. Uh, nominal religious identity is more stable across time uh, until very recently. That is in the past in the U S you had large shares of people who might've in some very nominal sense, identified with something like Chris- Christendom. But of course, they never attended church. They did not behave like Christians in any, there was no evidence of like moral conduct or something like that. Um, 
they uh, um, they weren't like supporting religious policies. They were often supporting very disestablishmentarian policies, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in recent years, we have a different situation, right? Where religiosity, religious behavior is declining, but also nominal religious affiliation is declining. Yeah, and that is quite new. Um, and the debate is about what that means. It could be that we've just made a society where it's easier for non-practitioners to say what they believe, right? So maybe in the 1770s, actually belief was really low, but they just couldn't say it, right? Um, and maybe today it's not a unique situation. It's just unique that we have good measurement and people say it. Other people say, no, it is unique. It reflects a real loss in some kind of you know, belief system or way of thinking about the world. And so the way to get at that is just ask people instead of their identity, ask them their beliefs. And this is where it gets yeah. really complicated. So if you ask people like, do you believe in God? Um, there has been some decline, particularly with people born after 1990. Um, mm -hmm. All of the decline happened, you know, before they were 20. There's no evidence of a big change in adults losing their religion. Mm -hmm. Um, but when people enter the age at which we ask surveys of them, so about age 18 to 20, we do see at, at the entrance into the survey, we see a big decline in religion in the last 20 years. Um, we don't see an increase in switching away from religion in the last 20 years that hasn't increased, but people who say, look, when I was, I was raised Christian when I was 11, but I'm an atheist that has increased among people who are like 18 to 20. And then it sticks for their life. I'm not saying they then rejoin. Well, it doesn't fully stick. People do become more religious as they age um, in terms of belief, behavior, everything, but it's not a huge effect. It's not, it's not massive, but they do become a bit more religious, partly because less religious people tend to die younger. Um, uh, but, um, but beyond that, um, the other thing that's, 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 um, uh, train of thought uh you were asking about um well the secular the mass secularization oh, beliefs, of the yeah, yeah yes okay so that's like belief in god but then you could ask a different question like you know do you believe that there's an afterlife for your soul the share of the population that agrees with that has been stable at 90 percent for the last 50 years <laughs> there's been no change so you've got a lot of people who don't believe in god they're not they they don't they identify as non-religious like something like 50% of atheists in America of self-identified atheists say they believe in an afterlife of the soul. So like, like what the heck is that? Like, what does that even mean? Okay. okay, okay. Let me, let me jump in here. I think, uh, I, you know, I might have like a little bit of insight on this. Well, I mean, so, I mean, you probably know the cognitive science of religion literature, which is somewhat different than what we're talking about. So, I mean, you know, I personally do believe that, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, so I have, you know, like I live in Austin, Texas, pretty liberal town, not too many religious people, but some. But, you know, one of my coworkers one time, a very super liberal guy. And I'm, by the way, I mean, I think most listeners know this. I'm not very liberal <laughs> today, um, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but he's a super liberal guy, like typical Austin liberal guy. And we were just talking about ghosts or something. And I was like, do you believe in ghosts? And he was like, yeah. And I was oh, yeah. like, yeah, superstitious uh, belief has not declined. No, but but I, the, the, the but the, the here the issue yeah the, here the issue is like I was like why and he was like because I'm human and I was like yeah that is actually true most people have a really strong intuition no matter what they're taught about yep. stuff like that I never have like I walk yeah. through like cemeteries and I I've never been scared so there's something so, like something so dead inside you know <laughs> no, no I'm, just, I'm honest about it I'm honest so this, about it yeah no but this isn't so like you know there's all these studies on like you know people they do like GWAS or kinship studies on like religiosity right. I mean, there is a genetic component to religiosity, not to religion. And there's an important yeah, not distinction to, not there. to religious identity. Yeah, to religiosity. And so what no one has done, and what I desperately want someone to do, but you got to get the data for it, is to, is to do a GWAS and distinguish between religiosity and superstitious belief. Right? There, like, there, yeah, there's, there's people working on it. Yeah, like I, I really want to see that. I want to know how much of the GWAS of religiosity is superstitious belief versus like pro-social inclinations or like, you know, yeah. other things it might be or fertility, right? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so like superstitious belief has not declined by nearly as much as nominal religion. So like, what do you make of that? Like, and so it gets very complicated where you're like, okay, you're in a world where religious practices, recognizably religious practices declining. Nominal religious affiliation is declining. Some religious beliefs are declining. Other religious beliefs are not. And 
I believe, although there's not yet empirical evidence for this because survey people who write surveys are not interesting enough people to think of this, we should be asking things like, do you believe some rocks have magical powers to heal you? Because like that belief is clearly growing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you like, do you believe your astrological sign is actually going to impact your life? Belief in that is clearly rising. <laughs> so like, yeah. I would love to get more surveys of that. Because that's an emergent religious belief that might be supplanting a different, or like, do you believe that like, you know, asking about essential oils would be interesting, right? Um, these are things that like, yeah, you know, these are clearly religious, like superstitious and religious beliefs that, um, that we're not surveying as religion. We're not asking about any, in any systematic way. And I suspect what that means is we're actually dramatically overstating the extent to which religion is declining yeah, versus- that it's changed that superstitious belief is finding a new outlet in a new kind of what's clearly like a metaphysical, a set of metaphysical claims, right? It's not secular, yeah. right? If you think a crystal is going to heal you or change your energy for the day, like that is very much like in the yeah. realm of very conventional religion. Yeah. So let me, um, let me like, just like, I think that there's four categories here. So there's people who have strong supernatural intuitions who are affiliated with a traditional organized systematic religion as we understand it. There's people who have strong supernatural intuitions, but they're not affiliated with an organized religion. These people often call themselves spiritual, you know? Yep. And then, the, then there's people like – religious. Yeah, but there's people like me. I'm not religious. Uh, I'm also have like very, very, I'm just very low on intuitions about supernatural things. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now there is a fourth category and I've known people like this. Um, people who are, they're, they're like converts to like traditional Catholicism. And I privately talk to them and they're like, yeah, I don't really get it, but I believe in, you know, the proofs and, you know, summa, summa yeah. theologica. I know people like this. I think they're kind of frankly overrepresented in the public discourse. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm kind of in that category. Like I don't have real strong supernatural intuitions. Like, like you said, when I walk around a graveyard, I don't get the heebie-jeebies like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, I can, I can go into various life experiences, but like, you know, I, I don't have that, like, Oh, that person cast a spell on me. I'm worried now. Like, no, I'm not. That's bullshit. Like, <laughs> it's just fake. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, it, I don't have really strong supernatural intuitions. I also like max out the scales on like any survey question of like religious behavior and practice. Yeah. And I believe, but what does it mean to believe something? Like, what does it mean that I believe the moon exists? Like, does that mean that I have like some emotional relation with propositions about the moon? Yeah. No, or you can some or, level, or you can believe linear algebra. Linear algebra works, but that doesn't. Yeah. That's like, what does that mean? Yeah, you don't see so, linear algebra. Like, I am on a magic box device right now talking to you. If you told me that like little fairies made this computer work, I could not disprove you. Like, like I do not have that ability to prove that wrong. I just kind of take it on faith that like it is whatever. Um, you know, you know, I'm relatively religiously literate. I understand a lot of the claims. Um, I think there's a strong rational argument to be made for it. I also don't believe that the strong rational arguments are ultimately what motivate people. Uh, I think that basically socializing experiences are overwhelmingly what shapes people's religious uh, identity, belief, and practice. And whether you get the heebie-jeebies, whether you get the feels about your religion or not, look, also, like full disclosure, like I'm Lutheran and we're like the like we we're like lowest on the scales of like emotion, yeah. emotional expressionism and faith, like to begin with. So like, I'm a real good fit for being like, like I'm religious, but like when I say I'm spiritual, I'm like, I mean, yes, I am in my own sense of that, but like not in the sense of like, well, I, know, yeah. I mean, there is that argument. Um, there, I mean, there've been books written about this that, you know, not Lutheranism is in this direction, but there's like, you know, certain species of rationalist Calvinism, you know, there are people Calvinism who, uh, in terms of like they think like, you know, the extreme forms of Calvinism are actually the last step before atheism by disenchanting yeah, yeah. the world. Like there is that yeah, argument, yeah. you yeah. know, because you're saying like, oh, you don't get the heebie jeebies like you don't believe in casting spells like, you know, I have religious friends that because Jesus is protecting demons. me. Well, I mean, I have religious friends yeah. that believe that there are demons in the world. I you believe know? there are demons in the world. I just well, don't I mean, have any particular the, like emotional like I just like. As a proposition, I believe, yes, there are demons in the world. 
Yeah, well, you just said proposition. You had you had us at proposition. It's like that's not a normal <laughs> thing to say, bro. <laughs> like belief is not a proposition. Right, it's something yeah, you. So... I, mean, I, I don't personally, obviously, feel this, but the people have told me this my whole life. You know, they're like, yeah. it's a feeling, and then like you know, they'll talk at me about yeah. their feelings. I can talk to someone like you because we share the common currency. You know, yeah, 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 like yeah. But there's another there's another type of psychology I don't share a common currency, whether they're Christian or not. I yeah, they. Yeah. They're communicating in like a deep intuitive way in yeah, currency yeah. that I just like I'm I, right, I'm, exactly. I'm I'm broke. I don't have any of that stuff. It just it doesn't appeal to me, you know. Yeah. So I can I can I can argue about like the ontological proof or something like that, right? I can't I can't I can't argue about like you know God filling my heart because like sorry I don't have a heart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, no. look look, Razib, you know you know you ever you ever want to talk about becoming Lutheran? We'd be a great fit for you. We're a whole religion of people who are like I don't okay, have you don't, a heart. No, right. I'm, <laughs> this is the, this is a funny story. This is a funny. And I'm I'm not gonna. I don't want to talk about this too much because like I don't want people like people like uh, knowing too much about my personal <laughs> life. But I have a lot of Catholic friends, and so you know the joke is um, so uh, you know the fifteen seventeen project. Oh yeah, uh, they're great. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I like them, but like. I have some issues with the Reformation and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So I like I went and like I argued with Gibson about it. And he was like, wait, are you Catholic? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm an atheist. And so I was like, I just always joke. So I have a Calvinist friend and we were talking about Christianity. And he was like, you know, you should like look into this. And I was like, well, the Catholic Church has a right of first refusal. And like that did not like go down well. <laughs> look, anyway. hey, look as, like as a Lutheran, you know, if anybody ever wants to renegotiate Westphalia at the point of a sword, my team is fixed. I know which side I'm on. Like, I'm here for it. Let's go. But you know what? At the end of the day, Catholics are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure. It's great. Love it. Yeah. You know, uh, just, you know, stay away from government, guys. Well, so I do have to say, you know, I do have to say growing up in the United States in the late 20th century, um, you know, I grew up in you know, upstate New York and Oregon. And um, I have to say that um, in terms of religion, I have come to feel that we are, you know, so we we're talking about like secularization and America founded as a non-confessional state, which is pretty weird. So what I like to say is America was not founded in a Christian nation. It was a nation of Christians. And by that, like, it's just obvious that they assumed that Christianity was going to be the default religion, the culture. And even, even as late as the 20th century, I feel like I do feel like there is a Protestant presupposition about a lot of this country in terms of how religion is, yeah. how our society is ordered. And it doesn't really, ultimately it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim, you know, Catholic, Jewish, whatever you, or even like, you know, a liturgical Protestant magisterial Protestant, like radical reformation, um, Protestantism has really shaped this country in ways that are really hard to disen disentangle if you were raised in this country from from just your orientation in the world. Yeah, so I mean obviously like we're the founders many of them are not religious, many of them are deist. Uh you know, these are not like they're not founding a theocracy. Uh and many of them turn around in their state legislatures and then immediately like disestablish the churches that were in there. Um however, it is absolutely true that the founders did not imagine a world where the ethical, moral, and broad, like very broad metaphysical assumptions of generic Protestant Christianity were not going to be the basis for society. They, that is say, they didn't imagine a sectarian society at all, but they, they, they would not have conceived of a world where something vaguely like, you know, mainstream Protestant moral beliefs were not the reigning uh, normative value set that guided people's behavior. And also the founders were not agreed even on the question of sect. So for example, the, in the Barbary States treaties, um, the ones that Adams negotiates say that we are not, a, they explicitly say the United States is not founded on any Christian principle, yada, yada, yada. They're like, we're like, this very strongly secular language. Those ones don't last. They get abrogated. Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans negotiate a second round of Barbary States treaties that are still in force today. You can look them up on State Department's website. They're there. And they explicitly say that the United States is a Christian nation. They're still legal. Um, and they say that. Uh, they're still in force with Morocco. Like the treaty never broke. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, like, you know, we should ignore all the other voices of the founders, so to speak. But like, this has always been a debate. Like we've been arguing about this since literally before we were a country. Um, 
So I would argue that on some level, being American means sitting on the fence of this question so hard that you get splinters way up in there. Um, that like, if you don't feel a temptation to have it both ways on this question, then like, you're not fully encapsulating the founding mentality. <laughs> um, also, it's worth mentioning, mm-hmm. like what was meant by Protestant, like Blaine amendments are a great proof case of this because they had enormous public debate. They left an enormous public record and they prohibited sectarian school financing. So what did sectarian mean? Well, public schools had reading of the Bible. They had prayers. They had all this clearly Christian stuff. So what did they mean? What they meant is they wanted, they, they prohibited any non-Christian funding and also anything that they saw as a sect. So what is a sect? Well, it's any Christian denomination that asserted its denominational identity as superior to the label Christian or that didn't agree that all the other Christians were also Christians. So who did that mean? Mormons. Um, it meant Catholics, most of all. It also meant Lutherans. And if you look at American history, who are the groups that have the biggest uh, school and hospital systems? Jews, Catholics, Lutherans, Mormons. Why? Because we're the ones who are targeted. <laughs> Why? Because we're the ones who are like, guys are like, you might be okay, but we're very, like we set ourselves apart. And so we set a target on our backs um, because we were not generic American Protestant. And as a result, our churches got burned. Um, We got direct constitutional assaults in Blaine amendments. Catholics were the main target because they were more numerous, but uh, Lutherans and Jews were absolutely being, and Mormons were absolutely being targeted in there as well. Um, uh, You know, we, we, you know, we were, and also Eastern Orthodox to some degree. Um, you know, we're the groups that that were getting hit by this because we were non-compliant with non-sectarian Protestantism. We were like, actually, like my church, we were founded for the purpose of sectarian division. Like, we were like, we're not going to do generic Protestantism with the Reformed people. Like, that's our whole reason for being. So, like, of course, yeah. we're going to be targeted by non-sectarian stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, you know uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans, like in terms of your denomination, like explicit denominationalism, that's also like a little weird in America today because everyone's yep. like, "Oh, we're all Christian. We believe in that." No, you guys are like, "No, we don't. We don't." You know, <laughs> we're all Christian, but we do not believe the same things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so we're close. You know, as we're closing out, um, I want to ask you, Lyman. You know, you've talked about fertility a lot. We haven't talked that much about fertility. Um, and uh, congratulations on fatherhood and all that. Um, you know, it's great, right? But um, two going on three yeah do you have kids yeah i got three hey that's great for now we'll see <laughs> <laughs> i got, I got it's, it's not like great. it's a competition <laughs> great great for now or three for now uh you know i mean i, I have aspirations to get be, beyond three that's what there i'm gonna put, go. okay. put out there uh, we're, but, we're, we're, sh- we're shooting for five so okay yeah that's yeah that that, that to me that's a good that's a good um that's that's a good target. Um, so, uh, so I, I'm gonna ask you though. Um, so it's really weird. Like you're talking about cyclical stuff. It's like very non-Christian way to to talk about the world. But whatever. Um, so uh, do you think? So you know, I had Eric Kaufman on. Um, you know, and his stuff about like fertility and religion and basically secularization, like pretty much everywhere. Uh, is correlated with reduced fertility, as you've implied. Like there's a few places like Israel where secular quote secular people are kind of at replacement but mm-hmm. really mostly they're below we see south korea yeah south korea has an active christian minority but you know over half the population is not religious its total fertility rate is 0.7 and well, dropping also, also christians in south for south korea have pretty low fertility they've got like 1.1 yeah, yeah, it's just, i mean maybe we shouldn't even use korea as an example the south koreans just, are just weird in general. That's, so a whole like, yeah. that's a whole different podcast okay i don't i gotta talk to somebody about that but um do you think that our current our current secular moment, secularizing moment. Um, are you into, I mean, I know you can't predict because we don't know these sorts of sociological things, but, you know, just looking at the total fertility rates and stuff like that, it seems like, you know, we're going to turn around and, you know, uh, we'll have like another, I don't know, like great awakening, maybe a 21st century great awakening. What do you think about that? So uh, the example, so the important thing to look at in this is to ask, uh, do we have any prior example of this? And the answer, of course, is yes, we do. Um, the classic example of this is in the, you know, the first to fifth centuries where the old religion was dying, Roman paganism, is being replaced by the newly emergent religious superpower, Manichaeism. You thought I was going to say Christianity, right? But no, Manichaeism. 
um, which was more numerous in many parts of the empire, especially if you include Mithraism as like kind of a related sect, right? Um, where are the Manichees today? They're dead. They're gone. There are none of them. The last documented Manichees were in like 1890 or something. Okay. So what in, happened in, Chi- in, in China, right? Uh, I forget where. Yeah. But like they're, yeah, they're gone. There's still, um, there's still, there's still a temple. There's still a temple in Fujian. There's a temple, but it's a Buddhist temple now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they Buddha. Yeah. yeah. Although, okay, like, uh, in defense of the Manichaeans, though, um, you know, the Ming Dynasty, he did come out of a post Manichaean sect, so yeah, yeah, they still yeah, had some yeah, influence, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, but like they died out. Okay, but at the same time as the Manichaeans, there was another sect. Again, I'm not gonna. I'm not about sacred Christianity. <laughs> there's another sect that is still around today. A hundred thousand or so of them, the Mandaeans. Yeah. The Mandaeans are coming out of the exact same general milieu. Actually, Man- Manny himself is coming out of a sect related to Mandaeanism. Um, yeah. They're a sect in southern Iraq for the most. Well, now they've mostly left. Well, now, the, now they're mostly in Sweden. They're mostly in Sweden yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so the Mandaeans are interesting. The big distinction between the Manichaeans, there's many distinctions between the Manichaeans and Mandaeans. But a, an important one to note is that the Manichaeans had an anti fertility posture, right? They really restricted reproduction for particularly like their priestly class. Um, Mandaeans did not. Mandaeans are like, have babies. Babies are great. Love them. Have a lot of them. Numerous. Very pro-baby. They're coming out of similar theological milieu. The Manichaeans grew massively larger for several centuries. I mean, the Manichaeans spread like wildfire through conversion. They had lower fertility than societies around them. They don't exist today. The Mandaeans never got as big as the Manichaeans. They still exist. Now, that is the power of differential fertility to keep you from ceasing to exist. Mandaeans, like I said, there's about 100,000 of them. You would think after two millennia of differentially high fertility, there'd be more than 100,000 of you. There aren't. Why? Because conversion is very powerful. So Kaufman's argument is basically that differential religious fertility inevitably leads to religious majorities. What I would argue is that religion is weird. that we don't actually know what it is that makes fertility heritable for basic like Fisherian reasons. Fertility shouldn't be heritable. <laughs> like this is nuts. It shouldn't be heritable. Like if it's heritable, that, like, and that's his point is it will get weeded out, but we don't know what it is about religion that makes it about fertility. That makes yeah. it heritable via religion. Wait, 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 okay. we, we don't have that much time, but really quickly, you said Fisherian, you're talking about R.A. Fisher. Yeah, Basically, yeah. if something is affecting fertility, that is, like fitness qua fitness yeah, and so fitness. It's it should be just like ex- extremely strongly selected yeah, 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 there shouldn't yeah, yeah. be variation. but go on yeah. finish up so so like you know his argument is basically that tells us that irreligion will be weeded out but i think it's also possible just that whatever it is that makes religion pronatal um will diffuse will spread if it's something genetic a lot of non-religious people will have that gene if it's something mm-hmm mimetic at least some secular groups are probably going to learn it unless it's something truly inherent to religion it might be it might be about transcendent I- identity something like that um but even then how people fulfill that sort of religious demand inside them is going to be highly socially sensitive what replaces religion to justify fertility might not be something that today we recognize as religion right mm-hmm. or religions themselves might change most religions are not super high fertility today um so I really resist the idea that differential fertility necessarily leads to religious victory because what that religion looks like three centuries from now is very unclear. The power of conversion is very powerful. My whole view of religion, right, is that it basically is through idiosyncratic socialization um, and where we actually have examples of like similarly situated small sects with similar general ideologies but then like radically different fertility and conversion politics. Cause Mandaeans don't really, they're like opposed. There is, they're a mystery religion. They don't seek converts. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, what we see is, yeah, differential fertility does you a lot of good. It keeps you from going extinct. So I think differential fertility among religious people very plausibly means we will never be a fully secular future. I don't think it means that we're going to see a future where like the Amish are half of the population or something. Yeah. Like, that's not happening partly because they'd all die of famine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They require uh, other people to sustain yeah, their. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, on some level, as these groups get bigger, their rate of conversion out will rise, yeah. uh, eventually. Um, so, yeah. so my view on this is that no, the righteous will not inherit the earth, but 
you know, devoutly religious people are always going to be a meaningful political player. And they remain so even somewhere like the Netherlands, one of the most secular countries in the world, devoutly religious populations are still a crucial part of any political coalition. It's hard to govern without them. Um, it's hard, you know, and if you govern without them, you end up based on, you know, other groups with also very idiosyncratic demands. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think, uh, we are likely to be a society divided by religion forever. (laughs) Okay. That's a really long time, but, uh, so I, I I know you got to go. Um, so I do have to say, um, Honestly, like I think, I think you're on the right track. I pretty much agree with you. Uh, these like deterministic models like always predict an end of history that just never seems to show up. So you know, you, you got to go with induction at some point and just say like, okay, like it's more complicated. Maybe we'll someday figure out. Maybe we never will. So maybe it's just one of those God, God's mysteries. I don't know. <laughs> well, and this uh, is the thing, like you know, eschatologically, right? So Christians have their whole end times thing. A mm-hmm. lot of Christians have very strong end times beliefs. Lutherans, like. We believe Christ is coming back. It'll be very sudden. It'll happen. It'll be done. Heaven, hell. Okay, all finished. Like, we don't believe that there's going to be like some giant buildup of like monsters walking out of the ocean. Like, that's not us. That's like the Pentecostals. It's not us. Um, it's just, gonna, he's just going to do it. Okay. So like for us, history is just like a long cyclical humans getting better and worse, better and worse, better and worse forever until God's like, cool, we're done. Um, I, That's, that's, you're making Pentecostalism seem kind of cool. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. I know. I mean, monsters walking out of the ocean is actually objectively like an awesome in time. Is, it, is this kaiju? <laughs> but, you know, again, if you want like like the, the most like humdrum version of Christianity, not too much emotion and no monsters, like. All right. All right. I think, I think with that will add like, thank you, Mr. Humdrum Christianity. That, you're, you're a great spokesman, I guess, for you know, <laughs> hyper-rational humdrum religion. But uh, thank you, Lyman. And I will see you online, man. Yep. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. This podcast for kids.